Hello, everyone. This is Bill Griffin. Welcome to Different Take Podcast. And uh, if you like this content, please subscribe, like, share, comment. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Monica Perez, who's been a political commentator and has done quite a few, quite a lot of podcasts, and does a lot of research. And uh, hello, Monica. Thanks for Hi. having me. And tell everybody where they can find you and that kind of stuff. Hi, Bill. Uh, yes, thank you so much. I I used to have a radio show in Atlanta. Some of your listeners might remember that. I um, can be found based on that at Monica Perez Show on Twitter. But right now I'm doing kind of a variety of podcasts uh, under uh, my channel on your favorite podcasting platform called Deep Dives with Monica Perez. So every week I do a couple of, take a couple of headlines and dig in and say like what's, what the mainstream media is telling you, but what is really the reason that this is a story, um, just what it really means to us. And then I also do Buddy Dives like this, where I talk to other podcasters and hosts. And then I also do some interviews with people who maybe are subject matter experts or activists or principled thought leaders, but I'm a libertarian. I come from a libertarian perspective, although I am kind of uh, wondering if talking about libertarian ideals or even conservative ideals isn't falling a little flat these days because our problems are so much worse than ideology at this point. I feel like we're in a post-ideological world. Yes, I'm just curious how, you, how, you, how, how, how that's changed, but I, I also... Uh, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, but libertarians, a lot of them were kind of on board with the COVID shutdowns and all that, right? No? Well, well, there's a big problem with the, the, I, the you know, labels is that with libertarians, there are libertarian party people, there's libertarian publications, there are even people on Fox News who call themselves libertarians. I call those corporate libertarians. They, prior to the COVID thing, their issue was like they would, I would call them conservatives who believe in abortion. It's like they were fine with wars, but they were pro-choice or whatever. And I, I thought that's not the libertarian ideology. And then you started getting people, high positions in the libertarian party saying stuff like Brett Kavanaugh is a, stands credibly accused of uh, attacking someone and that's violating her liberty. So we have to be against him. And I'm like, well, credibly accused is, uh, you know, that that we have standards, we have process like that just didn't make sense. So the people put themselves out there as libertarians and like the COVID stuff, it just they uh, they twist up any semblance of ideology to go along with whatever's popular. I think it's to undermine libertarian ideology. And, and I think that Trump was there to undermine the kind of traditional conservative ideology that Ron Paul had been tapping into. So I, I always think of Ron Paul as the kind of, um, you know, transition from traditional conservative like my father was to real hardcore libertarian as I was. I don't even know what to call myself anymore, but I do. I feel like some of these people just pop up there to undermine the ideological stuff. Yeah, they. they uh, to this day, I don't understand the personal hate um, regarding Trump. I, I just, I, but. Well, I don't know. People, people think people. I people, just, well, people think. I mean, I understand it to this extent. People are make emotional decisions. They don't make logical decisions. They're not. I mean, that's just human nature. They they're not thinking about. Oh, I'm hiring a CEO. Uh, you know, it's a binary choice. 
who's the best CEO, that sort of thing is not the way most people think about voting. And they really, uh, of course. But do you think of Trump as a CEO? Doesn't that feel kind of un-American, like technocratic? Uh, I don't. I, I think uh, uh, you're not hiring a, a person you just want to have a beer with is what right, I'm getting right, at. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's not uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of people. So I have, I have really good friends, smart people that would tell me I cannot get past uh, the personal part. I just. But do, I feel like that personal part was mostly a show to get right. to kind of rile people up like he didn't care if he was hated because the people who were disliked him or outright hated him were both not going to vote for him so you might as well tap into what somebody what what the frustrations because we've know we already know that what makes people mad is more likely to get them off the couch than what they like so it was kind of genius because most of the time what you do is you get people off the couch to vote against what they hate but what he did was he got people to he commiserated with them in what they hated. So they got to vote for what they liked because of what they hated. And I know I don't really attribute any of that kind of stuff to his own some kind of uh, unconscious personality that he had, because if you go back in time, he had a totally different persona. He had them at Fox News. He had them at uh, and Howard Stern. Mar uh, Zucker, Jeff Zucker of CNN was the one who kind of trained him how to be the boss on The Apprentice. And I think that he tapped into a lot of that training as, a, as he's a PR guy. And I think he did a great job. And but I would take it one step further and say, I think he was chosen to for that role. Like, I almost feel like the powers that be have so much responsibility, uh, so much influence over who gets to the very top. I think that that in order to get on that stage and win the primary for the Republicans, chances are you have to have some backing behind you. So I feel like whether he they actually gave him money or they just liked that something he was going to bring to the table. Shoot. I mean, Democrats might have wanted him really at the highest level so that you could get some anti-Republican backlash that would last a while. I don't know. But, you know, and I wondered even if Ted Cruz was going to be somebody that also had that polarizing effect and that he just didn't inspire people. So, you know, not just the voters, but also the money guys who who get that, you know, they they kind of take the pulse of the voters. I think they kind of went for Trump. Mm, that's interesting. So how did that how did that compare to what was going on with uh, in the Obama years? So I had a radio show from. I think my very first appearance on the radio was 2011. And then I so I was I, and then my last was February 2020 when I started saying to the opposite of what you're saying. I was such a hardcore libertarian that I started objecting to COVID policy in February 2020. And I was telling people this isn't going to be two weeks. It's going to be closer to two years. They, if you do a little research, you can find that. And I mean, that was the end of my radio experience, but, but I was there for eight and a half years. So I saw, I saw uh, most of Trump and a lot of Obama. And I remember when I was, I was really, I was so surprised because I was raised by my father who's a traditional conservative. And I, even then I thought of him as a libertarian, although over time, I feel like he was just a traditional conservative, a minarchist, a minimum government. He said the only legitimate functions of government were the police, the army and the courts of the federal government. 
That's what I was taught. And when I brought that to the radio, and I never, I grew up in New York, so I never knew anyone who thought like that at all. And I moved to Atlanta and very quickly got just by some serendipity, got, I wasn't a broadcaster or anything. I was a banker um, by trade, but I was a mother by occupation at that time. So I went on the radio and I was just flabbergasted at how many people completely agreed with what I was saying ideologically. That American heritage, that foundational um, those principles that our country was founded on were resonating with people, even though you just didn't get that hardcore, you know, you could call it traditional conservative. I thought of it as liberal or a classical liberal or libertarian, like the liberals hijacked the expression liberal from the classical liberals, which were our founding fathers, traditional conservatives, libertarians. Those are all kind of in the same category. And when, so when I was on the radio, it was like amazing that, um, People that resonate with people, but the regular conservative hosts like Sean Hannity or whatever who was on that station as well, they weren't really speaking to that for, for people. People really had that going. And I, that's why Ron Paul got so popular because he was saying things that I think we had learned really from our parents through our grandparents, some of us. Now, in the South, it's probably a lot easier to see that. But in New York, I could, I, there was just a straight line because there was nobody else in my world who thought like that. And uh, they just loved it, really loved it. And I remember thinking how powerful it was, what Ron Paul was tapping into. And I wondered how that they were going to really stamp that out because anyone could ignite it at any time. It was in our, like our DNA practically. And that's why I, so, so whenever I would, I would touch on those principles in my criticism of Obama I would, my phones would light up. People would, you know, everybody would love it. I was saying big snaps and I would, and then I have this very, I've said this many times, but it's an absolute quote. I had one person after when I was saying about uh, Trump, I don't know what he was. It was some, I think he was sent some bombs over to Syria or whatever. And people call them commander in chief, but you're not the commander in chief unless called into actual service. So I said that. And then uh, I had somebody say, oh, you're just, quibbling about semantics. So I was quoting the Constitution and under Obama in Obama's era, everybody was just piling on. But if I did it against Trump, they I was quibbling about semantics. And that's when I think what they did was they got people completely on board with stuff that Trump did that really wasn't totally in line with their ideology because they liked him so much. And they, you know, it's the old classic partisan thing. You won't go against your own party. I mean, Ronald Reagan is the 11th commandment. So, so they, they did it. And then once you do that, once you set up the basket of like what Trump supporters will advocate for simply because they're advocating for him, they lose the high ground on anything like that. And he tried to do that with like the guns and stuff. I remember him saying in a closed meeting or whatever was, it was recorded, but it was at a big conference table. He said, take the guns first and worry about due process later. Like he would throw stuff like that out there. And, you know, if you didn't call him on it, you lost that high ground. And I think that happened a lot. And I think it undermined what Ron Paul had been tapping into. And it took somebody from the right to do it, unfortunately. Right, right. That makes perfect sense. It's interesting, the labels, because if you're on the far left, Everybody else is on the far right. There's no, there's no in between. I mean, is that the way you see it? I, 
you know, I, I always think of, I always think of it as like a circle, I think, or, you know, a continuum where people would say, when I moved, I moved to Texas for a while, I was living in Texas and I thought, so I was coming from New York and I thought that Republicans were like libertarians, traditional conservatives, but my father would always say, like he liked Ronald Reagan and stuff, but he was like, but he didn't like Richard Nixon who opened up China and took off the gold standard and everything. And he's like, don't hang your hat on Republicans. They don't have the ideology, but he would call himself a conservative. And when I went to Texas, it was the first time I ever lived in a place that had concern, like Republicans as a majority. And I remember one guy saying to me, like, you're so far right that you're coming up the other side. like where you're left again. But that's because I was absolutely anti-war, or I should say I was opposed to anything that wasn't a just war. And a, and I'm, I'm even against anything that isn't a just alliance. I would go with the founding fathers in that I would be a continentalist in, in what they would call like your only legitimate alliances are with Canada and Mexico and you should have a Navy like that would be it. And so for me, I, you know, people think that I'm super, super far right, but then other people see me coming up the other side. But I will tell you in answer to your question that pretty much everyone, I can tell that people are listening for what they want to hear. And if they don't hear it, you are the enemy. They're not listening to what you're saying and say, oh, like there's somewhere in between here. Let me understand this person. And actually it worked in my favor because my show was a call-in show. And when people would call, they there are scripts, you know, they they follow scripts, these activists, they have scripts and they call all the everybody on WSB, for example, would get the same people calling. I mean, I could recognize their voices and they would have different names sometimes. And they would be really confused because they would literally have a script. And when I would say something that wasn't like among their answers in their little tree, they really wouldn't know how to respond to it. And sometimes if they were thinking they would then start to have a dialogue with me, which was amazing. But most of them would just like freak out and hang up and say, call me names. But occasionally you would find somebody who was willing to have a dialogue. And then you would realize that there's a lot that we have in common and a lot, you know, the real problem is us versus them. Anyway, the ideology isn't really the problem anymore because we'd be better off with that I mean, literally what I used to think was the worst thing in the world, and maybe it was at the time, like Swedish style socialism administered with some kind of sense of responsibility to the people who lived in the country might actually work. We have such good technology, even with all the waste and all of that and lack of incentive that that would come. I, I don't even think that would be as bad as the level of waste and and like uh, evil that is coming from the kind of corruption that's hijacked this country. Not, and I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats or anything. I'm talking about like whoever's behind the COVID thing. Even whether it's true makes you sick, doesn't. I don't, you know, I've had it twice. So it definitely makes, makes you sick, whatever the heck it is, I don't know. But to lock people down, I mean, live free or die. Like how complicated is that? You know, right. I agree. And 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 the uh, the if you just look at it from a, uh, just from a health standpoint, you <laughs> you do a lot of damage to your health when uh, you're broke. <laughs> so uh, and that's what that was very that was very foreseeable a couple of yes. years ago. I plan to, I've got a couple of interviews with uh, some uh, people that are running Democrats and Republicans too, but uh, 
And uh, I plan to ask that question because I don't expect to get another interview afterwards. Uh, because uh, it, it's important to know uh, what happened. Uh, I mean, what what their what their thought process was. I mean, it's all started here uh, pretty much on the local level. The shutdowns, the the legal, yeah. the legal, the legal machinery was okay. It was the cities, and it was the counties. And then but it was didn't the they state. need that that emergency declaration from from Trump? Like, I think that was kind of under advertised. That because my argument was, if Hillary was in the White House and she issued that, there'd be four million long guns in the mall. You know, right. And I tried to get people to go with me July 4th, 2020, and nobody answered the phone. Whereas Glenn Beck and Freedom Works and everybody, I went to all of their Obamacare marches. I was there every time I got the call. Nobody. And, and what I got back, I actually got answers. We're only protesting on the local level. And I was like, you're doing that because of Trump. But if Trump were to say there's no emergency order here and that I don't think that the science supported what would be an emergency order and they even recently changed the definition of pandemic so that they could call it a pandemic and people carry around the old definition in their heads, but it's totally foreseeable. And I'm curious, I'd be very curious to hear what they would say in answer to your question, because I really couldn't understand the mentality of all the bureaucrats. It's like straight out of 19th century Russian literature, like, you know, mindless drone bureaucrats who have no soul and only care about like the, the how, what kind of brandy they get to drink and what people think of them and they'll do whatever they have to do to get along, I guess, is my bet. Like, that's the most generous possible interpretation of what got everybody to get into lockstep, even in some places that you would have hoped better for. The, the language from the count, the people in the county level was that they uh, that they they bought, I mean, they bought into it. They actually believed this was going to be a temporary thing. I mean, it's it was just, you know, the county level of the mayors, I mean, they've got to live with their the people around them the rest of their lives. And it's kind of odd that you're going to destroy people's livelihoods and businesses and, and bankrupt them. And uh, that's got to affect their health. And they didn't think they, didn't, they were perfect. Everybody was on board with it. What what upsets me, and again, I will go back to my father because we're talking about ideology and foundational thinking. My father taught me uh, that I needed to. He he was teaching me values, the right right and wrong, and uh, how to reason with that. And he said, you have to really understand right and wrong because otherwise every time a decision comes along, you're going to have to weigh this and that and this and that. And the only politician at the national level, and I know you're talking about local, but like, that's why that annoys me because it took me one second, like literally one second, like, oh, you can't do that. Like, no. Uh, so they obviously don't care at all about having their value system as a touchstone there. But the only, um, politician on the federal level that I ever heard do that was Justin Amash or Amash. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He was a congressman, I think from Minnesota or Michigan. I should know. He wasn't my congressman. I think it was Pennsylvania. I think. No, I don't think no? so. I think it was oh, Michigan. Or, okay. Or Minnesota. Like he was way up there. Gotcha. It was cold. I could look, but he, he used to on his Facebook page, Every single decision he made in Congress, every vote, he would explain on a constitutional basis. And that guy was my hero. And then one day 
he did three things or like over the span of a few weeks. He said he thought Trump should be impeached, which was ridiculous. He said he, I think, wasn't a Republican anymore, became an independent. And he stopped doing that on his Facebook page. And I literally feel like somebody probably like threatened his life. You know, like I just I don't know what happened to him. But but my point is that there was one person in my lifetime who actually followed that idea of looking at your foundational touchstone as the the basis for your decisions for every single decision every time. And and that's what we needed. And there's no excuse for the people who didn't do that. Right. And I I mean, I, I don't know if I live long enough, but I think it's going to happen again. There will be another shutdown yeah. for the same reason. Unless, well, unless unless the kids grow up that had the mask on for two years and just and they're, they're <laughs> like driving the train. They, well, what about uh, the climate know. stuff? I mean, that's what people think, that this was a rehearsal for a climate shutdown. And of course, they put us all on Zoom. And I just cracked the code today on the telemedicine thing. I, and Amazon, Zoom, telemedicine, I think about how much I buy on Amazon, everything. I buy everything on Amazon. I'm not, I don't, I don't like it, but I buy it and I hate shopping. So my consumption has probably increased by five times what it otherwise would be like when I was a young mother and didn't have right. Amazon, I just wouldn't buy stuff. And we, I would like reuse stuff. And I just would literally like eat less, cook more rice. Like I just hate, hate, hate shopping. But with Amazon, literally, I mean, I have even gotten things on the same day. If you get up early enough and you order your thing, you can literally have it the, like occasionally the same day. That's how, sometimes I think I've just thought it into existence on my front porch without even pressing the buttons. But I, I thought that about telemedicine is that they really have been pushing telemedicine the whole time. And it's like the last big business that you couldn't just uh, pop into existence at home. You had to go out to buy it. And now they're bringing that to your home too. And I feel like they've just pushed everybody into their homes and they, they, now they, that it's kind of less painful. And even if we've all become incapable of, you know, we're all agoraphobic now or something, then we might even like it. I mean, there were definitely some benefits to not going out. Like I just, my like daily routine is a bit of a grind. So being able to just like not have to do all the driving and blah, 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 had some, you know, I hate to admit it, but it had some value. And the, the mindless masses, I think, may are maybe getting trained to just kind of like the living in their little cave thing and and they'll be all right with it when it becomes a climate thing and look gas prices at seven percent i smell a rat on that a seven dollars like they're seven dollars a gallon out here gas prices and i mean i i smell a rat because you don't want to drive anymore who wants to drive and they're like okay well we'll just zoom today because i don't want to drive either yeah the the uh the <laughs> it's it's amazing i saw a video of uh a woman, presumably a uh, on the left, that that blamed the religious right for the high gas prices, which is actually um, uh, isn't that what they kind of been saying that they've been wanting to do for years is to raise how, the prices of gas so that people could drive be, and they're going to save the earth, you know that sort of thing. How would it be a religious right thing? That's, that, that's well, everything the, is, I guess. I would assume that's just the propaganda she's been getting, so she doesn't. Right. 
Well, I mean, you can just draw a line. It's so crazy. If you want to hurt Russia, you know what hurts Russia? Low gas prices. Right. right. <laughs> you know, they're selling right. it. Right. So that's when they really were trying to hurt Russia. Gas was $15 a barrel. <laughs> you know? right. Remember? Right. It was crazy. They were they were selling, they were paying people to keep the gas in the in, uh, in the uh, ground. Yeah. So the uh yeah, no, I think that was February. That was just right after the shutdowns or before. I can't remember exactly. Maybe when, it was yeah. It was in that it was saying. in this it was in the spring of 2020, and people forget it. You know, yeah. there I saw today there was a prominent that uh the host of the uh, the comedian um Bill Moore, he had completely forgotten there was a market crash. And his hope and his guest had to remind him, no, it really did happen. That actually did happen. Yeah, Yeah, right. And that was probably the reason I actually think that that was a big reason why they made such a big deal. I don't know if you remember right before that or the year before 2019 there, it was like the 10th year of an expansion and uh, interest rates were at 2%. And I remember thinking if, if they have any kind of crash, which they have to have, then what are they going to do? Normally in their Keynesian world, they lower rates by like five, six, seven percentage points. <laughs> so what are they going to do? And then lo and behold, instead of owning what they did in 2008, the entire economy, the entire country's like economy, not the market, the economy was crashed. The inflation, there was an excuse to just pump up the, what was probably a debt collapse from two that, not only 2008, but 2001. So there was these, this long-term debt collapse. And I think that this, that the entire thing, the, I'm sure they had, they were happy to have a pandemic because they have many evil tendencies, but the timing really worked for them to be able to kick the can on people waking up to Keynesianism. Just like when Reagan, they closed the gold window in 1970, whatever, two maybe. And then by 82, they or 78, right. you know, that the, the right. currency was in free fall. And, and instead of Reagan saying, we got to restore the gold standard, which he might've said, but it wasn't going to happen. They had to do something. So they raised rates to 15%, which was crazy in itself, but they will do anything to, to save this artificial financial system. Right, right, right. That's right. And, 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 and 2%, uh, 2% rates, um, instead of being, being, uh, you got some experience in this, but 2% rates instead of what the natural, they would naturally be otherwise, uh, is uh, it enabled the uh, Congress to spend fifteen trillion dollars more than they would have otherwise? I know there was no Let's reason. This, this is how I think of deficits. They, there, it's unconscionable. First of all, because right. what you're doing is you're spending future generations money. So they have taxation without representation, which is supposedly like a fundamental principle in this country, right? No, nobody's voting who's paying that bill. So, and then uh, we are the richest until recently, I guess, the richest and most productive civilization in human history. So if we can't make enough food for ourselves you know, if we're consuming more than we're producing as the most productive civilization in human history on a per capita basis, we're consuming more than we're producing. 
I guess we're planning on some amazing technological advantages, advances in the future that will make up for all this overconsumption. But we don't need to do that. We could just consume what we produce. That would be fine. Like there's no there there's no reason not to do that. And they continue to act like there's a reason. And it's getting harder and harder for them to make up those excuses. And I think that's another reason they had to do the pandemic is to in order to I mean, how else would you get UBI and STEMI checks and set those precedents in a, in a in a world that just it's it was hard to starve in this world before, like not in the world, but in this country? Well, I mean, there, no matter what the uh, question is, the answer is more government. And they, and the government's the one that's creating the problems. That's the thing that's, <laughs> that's really maddening. Okay. And the health, you know, the health, the pharmaceutical stuff, too. If you look at the level of prior to like this recent fentanyl thing, which I don't even know why they're doing that, that, that I smell a rat there too, but the level of drug overdoses from, from pharmaceuticals was higher than from black market drugs, if I recall correctly. And what they don't even talk about, iatrogenic illness, it's called. It's where your actual medicine ends up killing you or making you like makes your symptoms worse. So they can't tell that it's the drugs and not your illness. So then they give you more. So it's just like the healthcare system. It just makes you sicker as the government just makes you worse off. It's called, I call it a pathocracy. It's like a pathological government pathocracy. They're not on our side. And, and it makes it impossible for me to even remember. That's why I'm such a hardcore libertarian, really an anarchist in a way. I mean, I call myself an anarcho-capitalist, but I'm just done with all of that, those labels now, because capital has been so bastardized by this fiat system. I don't even want to call it capital anymore. But I they've they've gone so far that uh, you you can't that I, I just couldn't even imagine that there was ever a government that wasn't antagonistic towards its own people. But you can't, I mean, it's really, I, I think maybe if you go before World War One, there were some European countries that had, you know, even just kings and stuff that had at least some, uh, they had kids, they wanted to live and rule. So there was some sense of responsibility to their own country that they would put above like some international elite that just paid them off because they had only one head you know, right. and they wanted to keep it on right, their shoulders. Right. <laughs> but we don't that's have really that interesting. anymore. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, the, uh, I wanted to ask you about, so the, the, the thing that's maddening to me, of course, the, I mean, people, we got what we, we got who we voted for, Right. Um, <laughs> so the thing that the thing that yeah maybe the thing that we the thing that is maddening for me when it comes to voting is this the people that are pressing and pressing for the voting by mail and it's on both sides they're pressing nobody's saying um, um, I I think it's wrong to just inject that uh, that dynamic into a household where oh um, well. You know, hey, college age kids, yeah. I voted for you. <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing. I mean, why do you I want have it? a son who has Down syndrome and he is now permitted to vote? So, and I let him vote. I told him to vote for Kanye because he likes Kanye. <laughs> I guess I live in California. It doesn't matter. My husband's like, you have to let him vote for who he wants to vote for. And I was like, he's going to vote for who his teacher told him to vote for. And he did. 
But uh, yeah, I, I just I should have just told him who to vote for because better he listens to me. But it doesn't matter here in California, I feel like. But there is a thing about the uh, mail in voting. I don't I don't I'm no expert on that, but I used to do a lot of shows with a guy in Georgia who is an expert in it. And he said it's not it, the mail in voting. There is there are ways that you can make it more secure and so he's not like totally cross the board. I understand what you're saying completely. I do. It's that seems true. But the but the voting machines that can't be audited are I mean, right. they're, it's I literally say it's like you go in and you make a wish like you go into the voting booth, you rub the belly of the Buddha like there's no connection at all between what you wrote and what you can see on the other end. And that to me is I mean, at least with paper there, there could be some if you tried really hard, if you really wanted to get the vote right, you could do it in a variety of ways. But the one way you can't do it is the what's sweeping the country, which is these electronic voting machines that cannot be verified by the voter or audited on the after the fact. Yeah, that um, I haven't done a whole lot of research on this, but I understand in Europe, they've got away from the machines and do and they did back to paper and, and lots yeah, think, of lots sure. of voting locations. And so uh, they so they may they may have I don't know if they tried it to work, you. but. This is the thing when people tell me stuff like that. And I agree with you. I saw that definitely happening in Germany. I think I noticed that several years ago. I think there's something called like black box or whatever, which is an international movement towards that. But you tell me that. And then I have English people telling me how like at least their parliamentarians debate and their prime minister has to go in there and talk to the legislators and be educated and whatever. And then I look and I'm like, okay. And we all have 50% taxes and we all have crap and we all have corruption and we all have socialism. And then we all have this, like, I, I would say, um, intentionally generated far right that create, you know, like we have all the same dynamics. Everything's wrong the same way. And it may, that's when I just give up all hope and I sound like I'm an anarchist. Like, I don't, I don't think it's possible. I really am more of an agorist, which would be, where like I just if you could avoid paying taxes and just trade your eggs for, you know, lemons or whatever, if you could do anything to kind of suck back that money and power and assume more autonomy. I've, I've begun to think that rather than just talk about the Bill of Rights as a libertarian, I myself, I would I aspire to just assert my liberty by being autonomous, by being in a position where. I can't be controlled from the outside so easily. I was caught flat-footed for sure. Well, they, well, they, you, you, you talk about the the, the dollar being devalued. Devalue, you talking about uh, was eight percent inflation rate. Yeah. I hate the, I hate the word inflation because the, yeah. the, the inflation already happened. The yeah. money the money supply was already inflated. Yes, as now we're just paying the prices. Yeah, yeah. So, every monetary phenomenon. Right. So it's uh, it, the idea that there there are actually there are people that think that this is going to be over in a couple of years. They're they're been it's it, it 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 can't be. There's I don't think they can unwind that fast. Well, uh, let me ask you. I have a question for you on that. So if inflation is a rate, so if they double the money supply, you could have 100% inflation. And then it's just, then it's there. So it's never going backwards. People are just like, it'll come back down. It's like the prices aren't coming down. You're When you're we're talking about ending inflation, you're talking about trying to slow, you know, stop <laughs> the bleeding. The prices are never coming back down. However, 
unless they continue to have excuses to inflate faster and faster and faster, I think the rate would come down. That's why I think they're like had to put so many things into inflating, like the war and the energy prices and the food prices and the supply chain stuff, all the things and the pandemic, all the things that they're saying are these like acts of God. It's like, no, that's all the stuff you did on purpose to get this thing to inflate. But at a certain point, what do you think? Like, it has to kind of level off because how many more shocks can uh, I deliver? Uh, I, I mean, when you look around the world, you see you see this rate, um, and the 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 Fed's at one and three quarters. The the and the Congress isn't going to stop spending money, so. That, that that I mean, you look around the world. That never that never happens. I mean, where you go from eight back to two, that's not going to happen in a couple of years. Is is all I'm saying. I I, I don't see how that's possible. Yeah. So it's a little. I don't. I mean, it's intimidating, and I I just I feel bad because like everybody put their money into four hundred one ks. Like the pension funds kind of went away, which was a little suspicious. Like we all used to be the smart money, and now we're the dumb money. And then, so you lose the money, but you're in an inflationary environment. So maybe if you can keep your seat, the prices will come back up just because. Oh, it's amazing. The, the, there was one of the questions on the Georgia, uh, one of these advisory, non-binding questions Democrats asked about um, uh, should student loan debt be forgiven? And they, it was 80, I don't know, 85% or something. I, I, it was a huge number. But my point is, the that's for wealthy people. That's who gets the break. It's not. It's, why? Because they're the ones with the school loans? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I do always say it's like the professional class that are the tax slaves because there's this if you're rich, right? Let's let's just define rich right now. Let's just define rich as idle rich. You don't have to work. Like you can live high on the hog, but you don't have to work. You, that's, you live that's, a, that's a great way to that's let's, probably, let's say that. That's the only way to really describe yeah. it, really. And those people pay zero income tax because they have zero earned income. They have no ordinary income. It's only the professional class that pays that 50% top rate. Like I'm in California and the top rate is like, I th- I think just state and local without is 13% at the top rate. And then you've got whatever the federal. So people are, are that class keeps less than half. And I, and it upsets me because it's those, it's that class. It's the doctors, lawyers, whatever, who they work like dogs. Like they're the ones who put in those really long hours. They went to school till they were 30. And because of that, they have to live pretty close to the workplace, which is like the city, their kids can't go to the public schools in the city, right? So then, then they have you know forty thousand dollar a year tuition just for kids going to school, and I, I just feel like the whole thing is is inverted so that that class of the most productive people are the ones. I, I almost I, I do believe this, and I remember Rush said it once, so I feel like it's not totally uh, fringy to say, but he said they do it on purpose that way because there's just you're generating so much surplus. It would it it would give you power. And they, so they want to take that down. And, um, but I feel like, I think the really, the rich people are able to pay the kids tuition straight up 
<laughs> right. You know, that right. is true. That's not right. going to help them. Right. It's just interesting how people perceive perceive things. Yeah. And so, then, yeah. and also the varsity blues thing where they took the college, they told all these that from that class of people, that working rich class of people who are like, I really want my kid to go to your private school and I'll give you the tuition. And plus I'll give you a million dollars so that you can give 20 other kids the tuition. And they arrested them for it. <laughs> right. So, so now you really aren't going to have, you know, that again, impoverishes, impoverishes that middle-class that, that educated class. So where they can't even, they have to get loans. They have to become indentured servants as their first act of adulthood. They have to become an indentured servant. Uh, yeah, that's very true. Well, well, I know you have something else to go to. I do. I do. I, but it was so fun talking to you. Oh, Monica, I enjoyed it very much. I hope we can do it again. I would love to. So I appreciate you watching. Uh, this is Different oh, Take Podcast. And yes. uh, yeah, Different Take Different Take podcast, Bill Griffin. And uh, and uh, where can they find you again? Thank you so much. The best way, if you want to chat, just tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. And if you want to listen to my uh, variety of podcasts, go to Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Okay. Well, thank you, Monica. Thanks, Bill.